Hello, hello, hello. I am your Gina Neri Singha, hostess with the most is Michael Munoz. And welcome to In Yo Mouth. In Yo Mouth. I'm the queen of food who's always in the mood to lick it right, lick it good, oh, show you how to. Oh, look. God, that's good. I want to know what you eat from the streets to the sheets. So open wide, honey. I'm coming. In Yo Mouth. Got the goosebumps. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey there and welcome back, folks. Once again, I am your hostess with the most is Munoz. And how y'all doing? Listen, every year, I guess, now that we're five years in the making of In Your Mouth, I have been in y'all's mouths for five years. That's a long time, a long, stanky time to be all up in your mouth. <laughs> but um, now I lost my train of thought starting this podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's uh, we are flying through the year. It's already March. Before you know it, it's going to be Christmas all over again. The time-space continuum just keeps moving faster and faster. And I really, truly believe that as I get older... I think it's that we're more we're we're just more used to time and space and so it just seems like it's flying by where is the time going where is the time going I did break my liquor fast my my fasting of liquor but not in a grand way I'm going to you know what I I think I may adhere to this like low liquor. Last week we were talking about with Chef Silvana that um, liquor is the new smoking, weed is the new liquor, and mushrooms are the new weed. And, you know, maybe maybe this is the journey for the rest of the year. I will keep you updated for sure. But guess what, y'all? We have another exciting guest. We are back in business and all is right. Thank you, Liza Minnelli. So without further ado, please help me welcome the one, the only Peter Redmond. Say hi. Hello. Hi. Oh, <laughs> I love I love this this vocal, like the vocal <laughs> sexiness you're giving me today. You're like, hello. Thank I wasn't sure how my voice would sound this morning, but uh you have oh, to give me live feedback in the moment. You know, it's like <laughs> Fraser Crane meets B. Arthur deliciousness, you know? <laughs> it's like low and robust for the radio. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sorry, I crack myself up often. <laughs> I, I'm the funniest person I know, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to be. Right? Uh, obviously, listen, when you're single and you live in 120 square feet in Times Square for 14 years, you learn how to entertain yourself very quickly. Blink once if you're in trouble. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's blinking. He's blinking, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forget. The audience can't see this, right? Um, oh, my goodness. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's uh, Thursday. Uh, it's, you know, dreary outside. It's, well, it's kind of gray and overcast, but... Um, yeah, it could be a lot worse. I mean, it's the winter weather. You know what? We're getting teased with winter. This is what I don't like about the this global warming is that, like, you tease me with something, but you never fully give it to me, you know, like my last dates. Um, <laughs> and And it's just, it's like, I want all or nothing. You it know? is really confusing. I feel like yesterday we had four seasons and one day we had rain, we had hail, we had the sun come out. Um, my wardrobe is very confused. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we did not sign up for San Francisco weather, Mother Nature. True. I Hello? did not. I did not. <laughs> we do not have the peaks and valleys. That's all I got to say. Well, first and foremost, thank you for giving me of your time and uh, coming to play with me today. But before we get anywhere, I got to do what I got to do. And in the grand tradition of In Your Mouth, five years later, I need to wish you happy National Peanut Butter Lovers Day. Ooh, peanut butter. Day. Yeah. That's a, a good day. Peanut know. butter. And this is perfect. You know, we just start finishing Black History Month. Peanut butter was invented by George Washington Carver. So I feel like that this is a really good day to celebrate. So uh, controversial opinion. Um, peanut butter apparently dates back to the Incas. I was reading. It, so there's debate. We can have we can have debate. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, no, but so I was reading from the Smithsonian, right here, that peanut butter dates back hundreds of years to the Incas, right? And then they attribute um, serial pioneer and lunatic John John Harvey Kellogg for filing this patent for pro-peanut butter, right? They move Ooh. on to George Washington Carver being the... Uh, at the forefront, and I'm paraphrasing here, the forefront of sustainable farming through peanuts and giving the black farmers a way to move away from the cotton industry into something that is sustainable and profitable. Um, this whole Smithsonian article I was reading today, because I was of the mindset too, right, of what we were all taught in school uh, about George Washington Carver and peanut butter. But all these articles attribute a lot of peanut um, peanut genius to George Washington Carver, but not peanut butter itself. Mm, that makes sense. And, you know, I, of course, throughout history and time, there's many rewrites. So, uh, but I love the what you've discovered. I think that that's, that makes him actually a much more cooler figure than I even gave him credit for. Amen. That's what I was saying. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we need that movie ASAP. <laughs> yeah, like... Like, fuck the peanut butter. This is way, way better. So because because um, back in the day, black farmers were prohibited for from planting crops like uh, food crops. So Carver began experimenting with plants like peanuts and sweet potatoes that could replenish the nitrogen that cotton leached mm. and uh, grown discreetly could help farmers feed their families. 
I love that. I love that. And I mean, peanuts are great unless you're allergic to them. But um, yeah, they have such a great, unique story, especially to the black community and the South community. So um, yeah, and, and just and just everything that he did, right? In in regards to the peanuts and realizing um, sustainable far- farming, he was at. He is the man before it was cool. Before it was cool, <laughs> yeah, to, to make this all happen. So. Um, I love, I just love this little bit of education that I, I discovered myself today. Yes, perhaps, perhaps. We're learning all the time. That's what, you know, this is about. Yes, absolutely. And just the, um, what he was like in his mind, I'm just like, oh, he was like, you know what? Fuck y'all. I'm going to <laughs> replenish this soil for my people and teach them how to do this. And y'all are going to be up a river without a paddle. <laughs> Peanuts you, for the people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> peanutsforthepeople.com <laughs> all right register that domain e- it's happening <laughs> are we a peanut lover do we, yes do we- absolutely i mean i i remember growing up and my dad was like really into any kind of like cashews peanuts pistachios i remember the planters um you know tin at home it had the blue label it had the plastic yellow peel back lid with that little you know, aluminum kind of safety uh, contraption on top. So, yes, I remember, and of course I remember the era, now I feel like I'm dating myself of getting peanuts on the plane, um, which you don't anymore. Um, No one was allergic to peanuts back then. (laughs) Apparently not. They weren't allergic to many things. Um, But yeah, peanuts, I I love them. I don't eat them as much as I maybe could. Um, But I feel like people use peanuts and peanut butter um, in really fascinating ways. So I'm always, I'm always excited. Yeah. I'm a, I, I, I love a good, uh, I can't have it in the house. It'll just like, it'll just disappear. And like, I'm sure y'all don't, don't at me y'all because uh, it, it's this whole like soapbox people get up. Well, they're good fats. Right. But still you can't eat a jar of peanut butter. You'll get fat. <laughs> Do you know, since we both live in New York, peanut butter is a very good trap. If you are trying to get rid of a mouse. Um, oh. Yeah. You, you know, so there's different ways, of course, you can trap mice, but basically if you're using any type of bait, they love peanut butter. They go crazy for it. So thank you, Peter, for yeah. taking us from peanut butter to rodent infestation. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all in a day's work. <laughs> we cover it all here on In Your Mouth, that's for sure. Well, listen, no matter whether you celebrate peanut butter, almond butter, or just nuts in general, today we celebrate you. And moving right along into this day in gay history... Peter, did you know that in 1977, Blue Boy Forum, which bills itself as the U.S.'s first gay-oriented TV show, debuts on New York Cable? I did not know that, and I want to know where I can watch this show and tell me more about it. So yeah, I deep dove, and I couldn't find really much about the Blue Boy Forum. It started as a magazine, and then... uh, then this show, where are my notes on this? Um, yeah, this Blue Boy quickly established itself as a lifestyle brand. And then it had a magazine and accessories, clothing, beauty products, and home furnishing. Blue Boy Forum was produced by Brian 
Weed Kind and debuted on October 25th um, in Hollandale, Florida, of all places. Mm-hmm. And then it debuted um, late night uh, in late night in Manhattan on a talk show on like Channel 68, whatever that was. Who had Channel 68 <laughs> in 1977? Were there you know? even that many channels? <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know. But um, the magazine was very risque. It was kind of like um, back then. It was just like an out magazine, but it also had like nudes in it. I love it. It sounds I awesome. 1977, sure, why not? I would have <laughs> been here for it. I would have been here for it. But this just goes to show you that we've been here, we've always been here, and we will continue to stay here unbothered. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I want to get to the getting on. And if you don't know, but you probably already do, Peter Redmond is a college dropout. He went to Parsons and the Art Institute of Philadelphia for interior designs with dreams of moving to New York City. After leaving school, Peter found himself in hotels and restaurants, waiting tables, and helping behind the bar, eventually moving from Philly to Brooklyn. He was part of the founding team that opened Mighty Quinn's first East Village restaurant in 2013. Still delicious. Since then, Peter has transitioned to working in tech for companies such as Kickstarter, Dropbox, and now Netflix, managing in large part their food programs and internal events. Most recently, Peter is part of the first class of the Fulton Street Fellowship, officially launching his latest journeys into the professional wine world as a certified sommelier. He has written for food publications such as Jari Mag, Busboy, his short-lived blog, Carry On Eats, and has had dozens of features in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Jari Mag, Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, MSN, Now This Food, Medium, Vice, Munchies, Chef's Night Out, the Upside series, Home Queer Cooking, yes. Uh, the Gay Men Project, Mohammed Fayez, Life Inside Dropbox, and Jazz Imitized, and more. Just, you know, just to drop a few names. For those of you that out there that don't know what the Fulton Street Fellowship is, Fulton Street Fellowship funds top-tier wine education and provides the kind of access that anyone needs to thrive in the industry. Well, yes. welcome. Okay. <laughs> Quite a bio, if I do say so myself. And I want to start with, what is the cross, where are the crossroads between the tech industry and wine? Oh, good question. I would say this whole thing kind of happened by accident. Um, taking a quick step back, I was working in restaurants um, and after I got into a relationship and I wanted to have weekends, um, I was trying to figure out what my next moves were going to be. So um, I was working in catering for a bit and catering um, really has a, a through line to feeding you know corporate clients and tech clients. And so this company I was working for, I was going on site every day to these big companies like, you know, Twitter and Tumblr and um, Foursquare. And uh, I landed at one of these companies that I just really formed good relationships with. And they needed an office manager. I didn't know what that entailed. But um, I like to say they took a a leap on me. I took a a leap with them. 
And that was my first foray into tech. And it really wasn't that different than what I was doing before. Um, I was managing their, you know, food and um, the events and, and also keeping the employees happy, which really is directly related to hospitality. You know, it was like working at a hotel and making sure that you do everything to make sure your guests have a great stay, except your client is not, is now, you know, the employees. So that's how I landed into tech in a brief nutshell. And then, yeah, we, I think every, every company and every event that I've worked at is so different um, that you're always trying to kind of like one up (laughs) one another and try to keep it fresh, especially in these days where um, hybrid work has meant, that more people stay at home where it's, they have everything they need. So when they do come into the office, it's about how do you make that wow experience? Um, and I think that that's where wine has really kind of come into play for me. Um, I'm actually hosting a wine event tonight at my company, um, and it's going to be a good turnout. People are excited about it. Um, and it's something that I get to do that I love and share that with um, my, my colleagues. So um yeah, there's all kinds of possibilities for wine and tech um, coming together, especially just, you know, you talk about uh, producers and climate change, and we could go down the rabbit hole for how technology can help out there. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Take me to the beginning, though. What started you on this path of wine greatness? You know, it's interesting because I grew up in a very unique household. I'm a 90s baby and my parents were, my dad was a chiropractor for all my life. My mom was into uh, natural medicines and kind of an herbalist. So I grew up in a household that like all the things that are cool now (laughs) were not cool then, like being a vegetarian or, um, you know, eating foods without like, like I, I really wanted to have Lunchables like every other kid, uh, but that was banned in my household along with anything that had red dye number 40 or mm-hmm. like stuff like that. And there was no alcohol in my house growing up. My parents drank, but rarely it would be if they would go to a social event or a party. Um, and then, you know, they might have a glass of wine or beer but I didn't grow up exposed to it really until I worked in restaurants. So I'd say working, actually, that's not true. Um, I went to Italy on a school trip in when I was like 16. And that was really, I'd say, I mean, you're, you're in Italy where we're teenagers and, and you can drink. (laughs) So um, I remember visiting a glass factory actually <laughs> and in this glass factory in their gift shop they had wine and I knew nothing about wine of course I'm a teenager and but yet we could buy it and our chaperones were like sure you could buy this bottle of wine bought whatever looked good to me at the time and I remember it specifically it was a bottle of Fragolino and so Fragolino is uh, wine made with strawberries um, and this bottle made it with me all the way back home. I opened it with my parents. It was delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really good. And then, yeah, once I started working in restaurants, um, I actually was working. My first restaurant was in a hotel, a French, uh, hotel in Philadelphia. Uh, and they were, because they were a hotel, they were very corporate and they really wanted people to be trained well, um, we actually had food critics that would come into the restaurant. So we had to, it was essentially fine dining. 
Um, so I got a crash course in, you know, wine and service and, um, and pastries and cheese and all the things that I loved or soon loved. Um, and that's really where my wine kind of like excitement stemmed from. I love that. I love that. Um, first and foremost, do, uh, have you been to the gay wine club? Does that still exist? It does. I think it still exists. Actually, Eric Fleming is having an event um, that I'm trying to get to because I've, I feel like I've known, you know, been in his orbit for a while, but we have never actually met. Yeah, <laughs> I've so been a I, fan from afar. <laughs> he's been on the podcast and I have yet. All right. I'm a bad, I'm a bad uh, supporter these days. Right. Not, not meaning to be right. I just the stars haven't aligned for me to get to one of these events. Same. Like, maybe we should go together. Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll we'll connect offline. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. These random things just pop into my head, and this is why I'm a little bit all over the place. Right. I was like, oh my god, Eric Fleming was on the podcast years ago at this point. Right. And I was like, oh, oops. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Much love to Eric. Much love. Much love to Eric. Talk to me about not only so I used to work. Let me let me start that again. I used to work at this wine destination here in the city, right? And this wine destination often had, you know, grand tastings, wine tastings, and it would pair with all the major, you know, wine distributors and so on and so forth. And we'd have We'd have all these massive wine events with all these sommeliers, right? Most of most of whom seemed gay but weren't gay because for some reason when you're in the sommelier business, there's just a little flamboyancy to you inherently. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, and kudos to you, right? And no shade, but maybe a little. Um, to those people out there, not you respectively, Peter, but... Um, you know, I wasn't seeing a lot of representation, um, not only of the queer community, but of the people of color, you know, in general. And what has been your experience now that you are on this journey, are working with and part of this Fulton Street uh, Fellowship, which does exactly that, provides access to people of color, you know, um, in this highly, you know, white dominated field, right? What has that experience been like for you? Yeah, it's been interesting because even going back to my first restaurant job, you know, I had this real interest in wine and beer and cheese and food as a whole. And I wanted to get more exposure and I wanted to get more, you know, certifications and experience. Um, but you're exactly right. There wasn't a lot of representation. And I think that's why it took me so long until really just now, like, 10, 15 years later, um, just kind of coming back into it and, and realizing that there is a place for me um, in the in the field. Um, so just, just that goes to show, like, I didn't see people like myself. In fact, Eric was one of the first Black sommeliers, Black and queer sommeliers that I had even become ac acquainted with. Yeah. Um, so that goes to show that there just really haven't been a lot of us that said there are so many people out there that are doing great things. And so once you kind of unlock the door, which I think I'm doing now, I'm getting to know so many other uh, amazing folks. Um, I just had a portfolio tasting recently with uh, Jade, who is from ZRS. That is a wine importer here in the city. And she 
literally knows everything. <laughs> Any person that comes from a diverse background in the wine world, she is on top of it. She's connected to them. And so you really do start to kind of like, I always have a quote that good people know good people. And so once you get to know, you know, individuals, you get connected to more and more and more folks. So, yeah. um, and I think that the tide is swinging, right? And inevitably this had to impact the wine world as it's impacted every other major industry um, that needs to become more diverse and needs to give more opportunities to underrepresented groups. Uh, and so wine is kind of having its moment right now. And I think it's perfectly timed. It's really exciting. Um, there's also conversations around climate and climate change. And um, mm -hmm. there's just so many avenues to jump through. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, um, this is what really attracted me to your entire vibe, right? And thank you. Eric C. provided me an entire beautiful <laughs> list of queer foodie people. But I think Eric was the only other wine person that's been on this podcast. I could be mistaken, but it's been a long time, you know? And uh, I haven't taken my Prevagen, apparently. <laughs> so, um, not a sponsor. <laughs> you know? The, um, but could be, but could, could be, but could be, right? Manifesting <laughs> the um, and it's really interesting. I we we talk all the time ad nauseum at this point about you know uh, being being LGBTQ behind the line, being being a person of color behind the lines, right? Or like leaving that life in the restaurant world to to create your own because there wasn't enough space or the right space for you to thrive in this in this medium. And obviously, right, even though we haven't had very much conversation about it on this podcast, right? Of, of course, why wouldn't it translate into into the ever grand world of being a sommelier and the wine industry and 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 that space you know what i mean and it's it's not a conversation we've had in in a grand sphere and it's like i don't even know what what that looks like you know yeah, yeah. i think that um something that was really like forming as you were just mentioning that was the, I think the major difference between food and wine is wine is such a slower process. Like literally, you know, you have the process of growing grapes and then harvesting and then um, going through all the steps. And, you know, this is like a two plus year process until you see yeah. profits. And so just by that nature, it takes a lot of capital to even get involved with wine. It takes a lot of capital to get education and, and wine, and it takes a lot of capital to taste wine, which is the most really important lesson, uh, and to travel, to be in these places which are very far flung, which are very remote at times, and you have to have the connections to even get to some of these places. And so, you know, who doesn't have the financial resources? <laughs> Black folks, brown folks, queer folks, incarcerated folks, you know, the list yeah. goes on and on. And whereas I feel like food is so much more accessible to all. We all have to eat. We all want to drink wine or, you know, those of us that can and choose to drink wine. But food is a necessity, whereas wine is, I think, thought of as a luxury or a commodity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that just really, I think, kind of creates the gatekeepers of where wine 
is so much more put up on a pedestal and kind of far flung from people where in food, you know, everybody has to eat. So, um, and here I am and thank you for taking us there, but here I was just looking at it very surface level, very like from just going out to eat and having, you know, saving up your quarters, your coins, right. To go out to a nice dinner where there's a sommelier and that, that's where I was just looking at it very surface. Like, but yeah, like let's take it back to production. Right. And who's, and who's, you know, sustainably farming and, and doing those things and, and who's producing and how do you get there and how do you get yourself to those tables in the South of France and, you know, meet those producers and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because, but even at, again, at its surface, you're not seeing those people either, right? Yeah. Or I'm not seeing those people. Let's put it that way, right? Because yeah. I, can't, I can't speak for everybody here. But, like, the, the opportunities that I do go out or that I do have to go out someplace nice where, where these people exist or where there's, like, a vast wine, wine experience, right? Uh, the, people aren't see, uh, the people who I am not seeing are us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then our it's, women, it can our, be um, yeah. also so dependent on where you live. You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, a state that really has awful <laughs> liquor laws. And so growing up, you could not even get wine or beer on Sundays, you know, after certain hours. Um, and you could only go to the state liquor store <laughs> to even get, you know, wine or spirits. And, you know, that is changing a little bit. But there's many states where it's really difficult to even get your hands on product. Um, and so certain things won't even be available in your state, depending on how rigid their laws are. Um, so there's really, really a lot of gatekeeping of antiquated laws that date back to really when prohibition ended. Um so yeah, there's there's a lot, <laughs> there's a long way to go. <laughs> are you meeting? Um, are you meeting a big or a large in your like studies and travels and education here? Um, are you meeting a large LGBTQ, um, you know, fellowship within this wine world? I think for sure in the bi-coastal cities, um, it's a lot easier to make those connections. Um, so yeah, definitely in between California and New York, I for sure have, even in Philadelphia, where I have a lot of connections. But when I travel to far-flung places, definitely not as much. I was just in Argentina recently, and I mean, <laughs> I think that I was probably the only Black person, <laughs> period, in a lot of spaces that I was going into, um, and probably one of, you know, few uh, queer folks as well. But they, you know, folks exist everywhere. We exist everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a little bit less likely that I'll bump into somebody if I'm traveling, um, unless I'm in a really kind of busy market like New York, LA, Philadelphia, DC, even. Um, at least that's been my experience. Is there, here we go, the, here we go with the Barbara Walters of it all. Is there, have you felt any pushback? You know how like behind the line, like this toxic kitchen culture that I'm forever talking about, that it's already hard to be like, just exist in that place and then put that you're a person of color, a woman or queer behind the line. And then it just like, there's all this pushback because there's not space for understanding. 
Mm. Right? Is does that exist in in have you felt any of that in the wine world? I'm sure it definitely exists. I think because I'm a little uh, in my honeymoon phase right now, and also yeah. I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm not working in a restaurant. I think if I was working in a restaurant, I think I would be facing a lot more of it because we all know uh, restaurant culture can be very specific, um, and there's a lot of hierarchy. And you know, I am a certified sommelier, but there are levels above the level that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm sure if I was interacting with folks in those spaces, I would feel it a lot more. I think now my experience has been once you kind of become part of this, you know, I'm not going to call it a club, but once you kind of get to this level of wine knowledge and appreciation, I think people are just really excited to talk to you. Um, and, you know, much like yourself, which I appreciate, um, it's been it's been good. I've been having really great experiences and conversations with folks. I haven't necessarily felt any pushback, but I think it also can be cultural. You know, I've been to some of the wine fairs and I've met folks um, that are from outside of the U.S. And sometimes I can tell that maybe they're not maybe used to talking to somebody, you know, like me or like my background. Um, I get tons of questions around pretty much the first question I'll get is, do I work in a restaurant? Because I think that that is people's primary, you know, understanding and entry point of working with wine, especially yeah. when you're talking to producers or importers or distributors. Um, and it's funny because I've worked in restaurants, but I'm not working in restaurants now. So I have this recurring theme where I always feel a little bit like an outsider <laughs> trying to enter a space. So even though I've been in restaurants, the fact that I'm not in restaurants now I, I, I don't think it puts me at a disadvantage, but it does make me have to um, figure out how I can speak the same language as them. Yeah. Um, so that, that's just been an interesting journey from my yeah, end. You have all my wheels turning now, be, uh, just because, again, we haven't explored this side of this side of the business, right? Since Eric Fleming has been on the podcast, and um, and I, I'm, I've had to do it then too, right? Um, but like, yeah, it's just like. Yeah, and and I know or used to know a lot of the major like sommeliers, like a lot of big names that used to be in in the business and these producers and you know just because of this one place I worked and so yeah you just got me thinking all the things uh, before we head out to the break something that I always say is really important um, are our stories and we never know who is listening and who we can affect and I was wondering if you would talk to me about your coming out story yes the ever evolving many chapters <laughs> well I oh, these days I'm always saying is that coming out is just not a one time thing so. it never is it and never we don't is. and we don't qualify coming out stories as good or bad on this podcast because your journey is your journey and you may what i may qualify as bad you may not think of as bad so i we don't do that here either yeah so i can i can take it back i mean i grew up in a very interesting household as i alluded to so i grew up in a um a blended household so uh my father it was my dad and me and he had uh remarried but they're old school hippies, so they actually never like signed any papers or, you know, got married in an official ceremony. Um, so the mother that I grew up with uh, was white um, and she already had two kids. So we're like this weird kind of like mashed together Brady Bunch 
uh, household. Um, and I didn't really have any specific, like nobody told me that being gay was really bad. Um, but I interpreted it from so many, you know, areas from classmates, from, um, from things on TV. And I think that there were little cues, right? Like my mom was, didn't want me to wear pink when I was growing up. And I think my parents did everything that they could to try to um, uh, make sure I wasn't bullied or to try to help me if I was being bullied. And I was in Taekwondo. And I I think there was a, a delicate balance of my parents trying to protect me. Um, but in a way, I didn't get a lot of exposure to different sexualities or I did, but I didn't understand them. Um, and so what I remember is going through elementary school and middle school and, um, people asking me if I was gay and I was like, what, what does that even mean? No. (laughs) Um, and so it really wasn't until working in restaurants that I actually got to work and get to be exposed to other gay and queer folks that I think, was good for me. I think it was great just to like level set that these are people who live and who work hard and um, aren't really different than you or I. And so between my time in Philly and my time in New York, I got to kind of, you know, explore myself a bit. And then um, when when I moved to New York, I got into a relationship, as I mentioned, um, didn't tell anyone in my family for a year. Um, I think I just wanted to see what you know, what this was for me. Um, and I didn't really feel like I wanted to label myself. And then once after a year had passed, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. Like, this is something I care about and I want my family to know. So I told my parents, um, I remember it was Easter weekend and, um, I just remember, I remember going well. Um, I told my mom first, (laughs) I I showed her, she would, she would always ask me like, oh, are you seeing anybody? Are you dating? And usually I would say no, but of course this time I was prepared to say yes. And um, I just started talking about my partner, didn't mention their name, but I was like, oh, I'll show you a picture of them. And it was a picture of me and we had met at a concert. So we had actually met the artist and taken a picture with them. So I showed her this picture and she was like, well, which one are they? <laughs> and actually there were two men in the photo. So I think regardless, she was, the wheels were spinning. Um, and after, you know, she understood, she said, did you tell your father yet? And I was like, no, no, I need to tell him. Um, long story short, she told him and everybody in the whole family before I could. And it was varying degrees of most people were okay with it. I never really got a lot of pushback. I think it took my dad a minute to kind of, uh, come to terms because he had lost his brother to AIDS. So I think that that was maybe something that he was reckoning with. Um, and then probably most notably, I ended up on a cover of New York, uh, New York times magazine, uh, with my partner. It was this great piece that, um, uh, they were doing on 24 hours of love in New York city. So they did 24 covers, uh, with different couples, uh, throughout New York. And they were all kind of, you know, pictures of them in love or kissing or embracing. Um, And I ended up being part of this kind of anthology with my partner and we landed on one of the covers. I did not, (laughs) I did not expect that that was going to happen, but that definitely kind of kickstarted my, Oh, like I got to tell 
I really had to tell my grandmother, who was quite religious. Um, my grandfather had built and was the pastor of their church for a long time. After he passed, she became the pastor. All the way up until her 90s, she retired my uncle. So you see, it was really, really ingrained in that mm-hmm. side of the family. Um, and I had a lot of hesitation with telling her. But this cover was going to come out. We're in the social media age. I'm like, it. I wouldn't want her to find out from anybody else. So I decided to take a copy of the magazine. I wrote her a letter. I enclosed some other photos of me and my partner. Um, and at that time, it had been like six, five or six years uh, of being together. So I really wanted her to understand, like, I have a life. I have a relationship. I have, you know, this is important to me. Um, and I sent it to her. And when I did talk to her, she asked me one question. She was like, I, I got your letter. And I was like, okay. She was like, I just have one question. It's like, okay. And she was like, did you get married? And I said, you know, like, quest- like questioning her, like, what? what? And, like, and she said, did you get married? I said, no. She said, good. I didn't think you would do that and not tell me. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the whole discussion that there needed to yeah. be. She eventually met my partner. Um, it was a really great outing. We went to her favorite restaurant, which was uh, Cheddar's, if anybody knows, <laughs> in the South. Uh, it's a chain. And um, all the way up until the end of her life, uh, you know, she really had a lot of admiration for myself, for my partner. Um, he has really curly hair. So I remember one of the last, the last time we saw her, she just was like, I love that curly hair. That's, you know, of my partner. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, that's, that's part of my story. Yeah. Um, there's been some ups and downs, but I, I really do appreciate that the people that I cared about the most were accepting and appreciative and were loving. Um, and I, I don't take that for granted at all. I love that. And uh, first and foremost, thank you for sharing and thank you for letting me, you know, or letting me help you tell your story and letting me hold on to that. Um, It's important and it's, you know, it's important to hear. Like I always say, you never know who's listening. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think this is a great spot to take a little breather. Peter and I are going to take a break and we're going to talk about how Netflix is going to charge me now more for my mama to have my passcode. We're going to talk about that and we'll be right back (laughs) with my favorite part and your favorite part of the podcast. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, Peter, I hope you're ready for my favorite part and the audience's favorite part of the podcast. A little something we like to call food news update. Food news. Food news. Honey, you ain't ready, girl. Spill the tea. News update. Whiskers and Wine Cat Lounge coming to downtown Akron, Ohio. Well, you know, it's Ohio, man. They need something. <laughs> I want you to know, because 
I like to try to tailor the food news or at least keep the food news like on topic here. And, you know, the food news can be all over the place and ridiculous. But I deep dove for some wine food news. I appreciate (laughs) that. And this is what came up. Whiskers and Wine is is a cat lounge and wine bar where patrons can work grab a drink, shop local goods, and play with adoptable cats. Oh, I think it's super cute. I have two concerns. Uh, one, cat hair in your wine glass sounds not no bueno. No. Two, there is a very common um, odor as- uh, associated to wine that has been corked. So wine that's gone bad, which is a lot of times cat pee. So that is just... or or your grandma's attic like that moldy musk <laughs> exactly right? so that is so funny to me because it's like okay are we going to be like how are we going to know the difference is the wine corked or are we just smelling cat pee <laughs> or, or maybe they're just or maybe they're just serving some franzia and some like yellowtail like, it is it is ohio i'm sorry to the ohio uh community but you know you have to have to have a, a little joke of it you know, I actually wouldn't be mad if it was just like some whispering angel and, <laughs> a, a, and I get to pet uh, a cat for like, you know. I'm a you cat lover. I, I'm all for it. You know, I mean, as long as they're friendly and not like scratchy cats. Yeah, sure. What if they're drunk cats? What if the cats are like drunk? I don't know. That that's. I'm curious about that. Wait, there was cat wine. Did you see that? There was. And I, I, I watched. Somehow I'm getting served all these videos on Instagram now. But um, I saw somebody make a tea using catnip, um, and the you know the cat was going crazy. <laughs> so yeah, oh, that was food news update a million years ago. That some company came out with like cat wine. Obviously, it was non-alcoholic, but it came in a wine bottle, and it was like catnip, and like you put you would put some in their like water dish. I love it. Or something, right? So you could drink with your cat, you know? <laughs> this needs to be happening at the Cat Cafe in Akron, Ohio. I mean, there are we could go down so many avenues. But I <laughs> I think I just think we're here with like for the adopting, finding these kitties good homes, hopefully serving some fun wine. And oh look, there's discounts for college students and a loyalty program. And it will offer special events such as Dungeons and Dragons with cats. Oh. And okay. children-friendly events like drag drag story time with cats. I love that. Is you Ohio know what? one of those states that is banning drag queens? I think so. They're trying. I oh. think don't quote me on this, but there you know what? This changed my whole my whole outlook on this because I was on the offense, but I think I'm here for this now. Yes, I'm here Uh, for it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Shout out to you. What's your name who's starting this thing? Nicole Farrell, owner of Whiskers and Wine, right? And Kitty Cat Winnie. Shout out to you on this day. (laughs) We are here for you and we completely support it. Starbucks debuts a new line of olive oil-infused coffee. It's been all over the news for the past week, honey. So I used to be the most avid Starbucks drinker. Um, I had a gold card, like, loyalty. I was, you know, I I, I was obsessed. And then I moved sometime, at some point in time, I actually gave up caffeine altogether. Mm-hmm. So I was I was having like heart palpations, which now I think was due to the sugar content more than the caffeine content. But 
Um, I do love coffee now. I don't love Starbucks as much uh, these days, but I saw this olive oil infused coffee drinks. And first of all, I was like, mm, are they going to be using good olive oil? I, I have so many questions. Well, first but, and foremost, they're not the first, right? Because yeah. if we remember, Bullet Coffee was doing the that MCT oil, yes, that, like the coconut butter. oil mm-hmm. and the butter, right? We have had butter in our coffee. We have had coconut oil in our coffee. Starbucks is not a pioneer. They right? really are <laughs> in this in this thing. So we're not giving that to you. And apparently, they are using um, a Sicilian olive oil company which created a curated blend of olives from Nocerella del Belice in Partana to pair with Starbucks Arabica coffee. Hmm. I would try it. I'm skeptical. I did have a friend uh, who uh, works in fashion who tried it recently. I think the date must have come out and she said she wasn't impressed. So uh, (laughs) the verdict is still out there. We're adding fat at its essence, like I've had olive oil ice cream. Have you had olive oil ice cream? It's delicious. I love olive oil ice cream. Very, very delicious, right? So we're adding fat, right? And for those of you sugar fiends out there, um, right? Fat and sugar sounds delish, but like, do we really need the extra calories? Like, <laughs> like, it, uh, are we, are we Starbucks? Did, did we really need to play? You gotta get a gimmick if you wanna, right? Like, no. I did like, you already have all the things and all the TikTok people creating extra things for you to do. Did we really need to stress out your employees like this? No, I don't think that we do. Um, again, I'd be willing to try it, but I, I just have my my eye out on them. I'm not I'm sure. I'm not here for it. I'm <laughs> not here for it. I am <laughs> the not verdict here is still it. out there, yeah. I am not here for it, along with the price of like an almond milk latte at all these boutique coffee shops going up to eight nine dollars recently i That's won't make coffee at home i make it i at won't home. do it no more <laughs> no more not here for it and last but not least a grandma was buried in an m&m's themed custom casket whoa what does that even entail is it like do you it have a, a picture of it it's a blue m&m okay it's a blue m&m Laying with its eyes closed, like it's passed away, and oh. on the blue M and M's chest are more M and M's with all the names of like the grandchildren and the children. Okay, I think that's kind of sweet, even though it is a bit. I've never heard that before, but you know, people come up with crazy ways to be buried. Um, speaking because we were just we're talking about coffee, you know that mocha pot. The stovetop espresso. Yeah, that that's use. what I use every so day. So the founder, whoever created that, when he died, he got cremated and was in. They made a gigantic urn that looks like that. Uh, that that looks like the mocha pot. And can you I imagine mean, I, you're having a party and like, <laughs> oh, here's this mocha pot. This will this will be enough coffee for everybody. <laughs> this coffee tastes a little weird. Uh, I um, think it's kind of iconic. Um, blue M and M. You know, yeah. everybody has their thing. Everybody. She has designed their thing. the casket with her son. It's a large blue M and M with its eyes closed and arms placed across its chest. Beneath the large M and M's hands are dozens of smaller M and M's with names of family family members etched on them. The woman's grandson revealed that the family loved the casket. They were all taking 
photos. I mean, I think it's know, sweet. Literally that? sweet. Literally. And there were M&Ms in the casket. Oh, interesting. Um, do those decompose? <laughs> I mean, it's chocolate, right? But, I mean, it's processed chocolate. But like, I mean, I guess whatever helps you deal with grief. Yeah. Right? What, Absolutely. Do we but, know what personality the blue M&M is? I don't remember. I don't know either, but it's just a little... My The thing that is just bothers me a little, and you know what? Again, I support this family in whatever way they needed to grieve, right? And celebrate their past loved one. But it's just a little weird to see this dead M&M <laughs> going into the ground. It's... It's very, very odd. Now I need to look at a picture of it for sure. I'm, but I'm, um... I'm, fi- I'm finding one for you. I don't, I don't like in your mouth, listeners. As you know, I like to surprise my guests with food news update, and um, I should have just sent. Oh, it comes right up if you Google blue M and M casket. Oh my God, you are not ready for this. This is what it looks like. Whoa! Wait, I told. The M&M Whoa, is dead. That is um, different than I expected it to look. Interesting. You know, it has the legs and the arms and... <laughs> it is, it, like, I wouldn't know that that was a coffin. <laughs> but no, now that it, you've told me... Um, it looks like they took something out of the M&M store, cut it in half, and put a dead body on it. It does look like that. It does. Um, and that's, listen, again... Grieve how you need to celebrate how you need to. I think this is a this was a beautiful way to commemorate their grandma, since who loved M and M's, who was a teacher, who who amassed millions of M and M's in gifts, right from her students. Great. It's just I. It's just a little odd to see a dead M and M. I wonder what the spokesperson from is it Hershey's that owns them. I wonder what the spokesperson would say. I think, if they would love, I think they would love it. You know what? I'm here. I'm here for honoring the dead in fabulous ways, right? Yes, I'm here for that. I, I don't know if I'm here for a dead Eminem though, because I just love them on the television. I know. What's your favorite color, Eminem? Oh my god, the the sassy green one. <laughs> I think I like the yellow one. He's like so funny and 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 warm. You know, I just love that she gives them the business all the time. She was like, <laughs> you can have this, but you're not going to get it. You know? was, that, was that Vanessa Williams' voice? Was she I the green so. M&M? I think yeah. so. I think Iconic. so. You know what? And with that, I think that's the best way to end Food News Update. Take that with you today to Netflix, right? <laughs> <laughs> As you solve my issues, my 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 uh, sharing issues. Yeah, we're all set. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. What's next for you? What's next? Um, so I am, I've just been doing some traveling. So I got back from um, Argentina. I was there for two weeks. I got to go to Buenos, Buenos Aires, which was kind of a bucket list uh, place for me to visit. Uh, I got to go to Mendoza as well, which is uh, their major wine region. And uh, a full circle moment for me, actually, because when I was working in restaurants and really starting to learn what type of wines I, I liked. Uh, there was a vineyard uh, by the name of Vigna Cobos uh, that made a Malbec called Felino. It's their entry-level wine. And I was obsessed with this wine. I bought it by the case. So to go to, go to their vineyard um, when I was in Argentina was incredible. 
Um, so lovely. I was also in uh, France. I got to go to Burgundy. I got to go to uh, Spain where they make cava. Uh, so I've really kind of you know been getting my feet wet a little bit more with the in the vineyard, which has been great. Um, what's next? I'm doing some tasting, some private events, uh, which has been really fun. I'm also doing um, a wine list for uh, 2.0 of Ursula, uh, our friend of the pod, Eric C. Yes, he's opening. He's reopening the restaurant in a couple months, um, and I'm helping him uh, with the wine menu. So stay tuned and come visit us uh, at Ursula. What's the end goal? Ooh, the end goal. I mean... Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, hard-hitting questions here. Yeah. Because, because you seem very happy in this tech world and managing this out, and this is your second passion, or maybe a dual side, a twin passion, let's call it, right? Yeah. Because um, you are all in to being this sommelier and learning and, and the education and all of it. Like, what's what's where do you hope to end up? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I go where I feel needed and where I feel valued. And so this is where I think my calling has kind of led me. And uh, I love events. I love education. I love talking to people. I love uh, feeding people and now uh, serving people wine as well with that. So there's some amalgamation of that in the future. And um, I... I do have a vision one day of having a space where I can, you know, lead events and host events and have people come in um, that are experts in their field. Um, I feel like I do that already in a, on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also important, you know, living in New York, we're so lucky to have everything at our fingertips. But I think eventually I'll have to go to a place where there isn't a lot of access and availability, because I think that that is one thing that um, is important to me is being able to bring the things that I love and enjoy and that are, I'm excited about to people that might not be familiar with it. Yeah. So one day, you know, you'll find me maybe in a, whether it's the mountains of, <laughs> you know, some, some small town um, that's hopefully uh, kind to, you know, folks like, you know, you and I, um, I think that that would be really fun. You know, I've lived in the city for 10 years, starting to think about uh, what next steps might be, other places I might want to live. And yeah, yeah, down the line, I think that'd be great. Plus to be closer to nature would be great. So um, that's kind of the big picture idea. I love the vision and uh, we wish that for you and we can't wait to see it. Before we close out, I found an article of the... The most and least expensive countries to buy wine in. Oh, do, do tell. Do you know what the would if you had to guess the least expensive place to buy wine? Oh, what the country? least expensive. I mean, country. Argentina was pretty inexpensive, um, but I feel like maybe Italy or Spain could be up there. I don't know how nope. many guesses I get. Nope. Um, Greece? Nope. Could Greece nope. be up there? Oh nope. dear. Um, the cheapest. So, yeah, tell me. So Portugal comes in at the top of the list with an average cost of $4.30 per bottle. Portugal also drinks the highest amount of wine per capita, nearly 12 gallons per 1,000 people. You'll find the, the next least expensive wine in Hungary at $4.81, followed by Chile at $5.13, and from there, Slovakia at $5.00. 
37 cents and Germany at six dollars. Wow, I didn't know that Germany was that uh, that affordable, but um, the others make sense to me. There's great, great wines coming out of Hungary, of Slovakia, of Chile. Um, They're all places that we should be visiting if we, you know, have the access to do so. Also, um, thanks to Food and Wine for providing a little bit of food news update and this, like, statistics article. They're still not a sponsor five years later, and I'm okay with it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> What's the, the most, most expensive? Yeah. Yeah, the most expensive? Do you want to guess? You got two guesses. Okay. Um, and it's so, nowhere, it's no, it's not one of the major wine-producing countries. So, yeah, I was like, there was two rules of thought. It was either one of, like, a, like, big producer like France, it's not my guess, but nope. um, because they make such prestigious wines that are, you know, world-renowned. But I feel like it's probably a country that it's probably due to import-export, and that's mm-hmm. why everything is expensive, you know. Uh, I visited Oslo once, and my friends told me how expensive it was to, like, go out and buy anything. So I'm going to guess it's one of the Scandinavian countries, maybe Norway. Uh, uh, Iceland. Iceland, see? Up there, up there. Yeah, cause, cool. And it's because you need to import literally every Everything. bottle. Yeah. The average cost of a bottle of wine is over $18, followed by Norway, which is seventeen sixty. And then South Korea. Yep, Korea was fi- on my mind. Mm-hmm. 1574. And then the United States at 1518. And then Switzerland at 1363. Mm, mm. Well, Switzerland is where all the money is. So <laughs> that yeah. one makes sense too. And Tina Turner. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who is this behind you, by the way? Is this Diana on the wall? No, it's Lainey Kazan. Oh, I, I'm not familiar. I'm so sorry. Oh, um, most people know her as the mother from My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Okay, yes, yes. She's, but she's the poor man's uh, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> Listen, um, uh, Judith Light is the poor man's uh, Meryl Streep. Like, if, if we didn't have Meryl Streep, we would have Judith Light. If we didn't have True. Barbara Streisand, we would have Lainey Kazan. You there know? you go. Perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewatch that movie soon. Maybe this that, weekend. Or you have to watch the episodes of The Nanny with her. Google, Google anything with her singing. Okay. It's incredible. Great. Well, I love the nanny, so that's always a rewatch in my book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, before we close out, give the give the kids the handles where they can find you, follow you, slide into the DMs respectfully. <laughs> yes. Okay, perfect. So you can follow my wine journeys on the wine was good. That's on Instagram. And then my personal, if you care to follow, is uh, my initial, so P J G dot jpg a little uh little play on words um and yeah instagram is pretty much the best way to follow me i'm doing always open to writing you know articles and things like that so uh hit me up if you want to talk shop about wine or anything else and those will be linked out in the liner notes you and i have to get together to go support our yes. our sister friend eric right we're having an event soon so yeah let's talk about it yeah let's figure that out thank you so so much for coming on to the pod giving me time out of your very busy schedule to talk to me it's I am so happy that we've connected and that you are now part of my big gay food family. Yay. It was a pleasure. Thank Uh, you. Congratulations on five years. Yeah. Five years, five years weekly, except for that one time a couple of weeks ago where I had 
technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, that's revisionist history. We could, you know, it never happened. Yeah, it never happened. Don't worry. I make up for it for sure. In um, I need in a pr- t-shirt, by the way. These shirts are amazing. Oh, my! I'm a mouthful? May- yes. Maybe. I, I know someone who can who can get you one. So All right, we'll talk about it. <laughs> we, we can totally make that happen. And I need a penis mug, a penis <laughs> coffee mug. Oh yes, my you God. can get it from Franca. They are a Bushwick. Uh, oh, uh, I, lo- I know them. Yeah, I know yeah, them. I know yeah. them. Um, all right. Well, thank you again for coming on the pod. In your mouth, listeners, it's March. Um, the weather is crazy all across America and beyond, as is the news. Um, stay safe out there. Stay warm and or cool out there. Eat healthy things, make good decisions, and as always, thank you for listening to In Yo Mouth!